This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Andre Johnson. David gets the snap, airs it out long, down the left side, wants Andre Johnson, and it's caught! Andre Johnson catches it for a touchdown! Sensational play! You're listening to the ISS for two. Well, big day here on the ITest for two. First of all, we have Ira Kaufman back with us after a little R&R that we'd be reading and writing in Palm Beach where the NFL owners meetings were last week. Uh, welcome back, Sage. Thanks. And you know who was uh, sorely missed? John McClain was not in Palm Beach. And he is a mainstay. For, you know, McClain's not going to miss that Monday night party, Clark. But he, he was not there. And, John, you were conspicuous by your absence. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank you guys for having me. That's the first league meeting I haven't been to other than the pandemic when we didn't have them since somewhere in the early 80s. And since I knew I was retiring, I told them to send my my cohort, Brooks Cabina, who covered the Texans with me last year. So he got to go to his first combine and his first league meeting. And of course, he loved it. And uh, you never know, I may come back sometime in the future. I had such a good time doing it. And I'm, I'm uh, still doing 10, 10 weekly radio shows in six cities. So I'm still kind of covering the Texans and the NFL and the Astros. And I've been keeping up with all of them because of radio for so long. So I'm just retired for the Chronicle. And I got to tell you guys, doing everything I've been doing since last Thursday for the week and not having to worry about writing a column or anything else I did had done is uh, a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in case you haven't guessed it, that is today's guest. That is Hall of Fame voter, John McLean. Yeah, he's back with us too. He's a friend of the show. And normally I'd say John McLean of the Houston Chronicle, except as he mentioned, he retired last week after... 47 years at the paper. And if you think that's a big deal, it's because it is so big that on Tuesday of this week, April 5th, Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner declared it John McLean Day and had John honored, as he mentioned, at City Hall. And and you know what? He should be because um, let's go into his resume. He was a past PFWA president. He's a Bill Nunn award winner, which means his name is on the walls of Canton. He's a member of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. I think that was 2019. He's a member of the Baylor University Hall of Fame. I think, John, that was 2017. He went to Baylor University. Uh, Named a gridiron legend in Texas. That was 2015. And he was just the third media member named to that award. His radio personalities, he just mentioned. He has 10 weekly shows in six cities. It's a little more than us, Ira. Um, he's a cinema personality, too. He's appeared in eight movies. That's about eight more than you and I have, Ira. Longest Yards, one of them, Secretariat, The Rookie, you name it. Uh, he's also a, he's a mentor to aspiring journalists everywhere. And, of course, he's a friend and a dear friend to all writers, especially these two writers on the show, with people including Ira Kaufman calling John the general. So with that out of the way... John, first of all, congratulations. 
on a great career. Congratulations on being honored with your own day. And I guess the question now is, what are you going to do? I mean, you, you mentioned you've got the, the radio shows. You're, you're going to kind of cover the Texans, um, Houston sports. What are you going to do now that you don't have a paper that you're a columnist of? Well, today, you guys are the third show I've done, and I've got a total of eight, including two TVs. And then, uh, let's see, on, on uh, let's see, Friday, I have one, two, three, four. And so I'm trying to uh, accommodate everyone I can. I always do that. I've always thought that uh, I, I used radio. I've been on radio in Houston since 1976, when I came to Houston from Waco, where I uh, worked for four years while I was going to Baylor. And I came here to cover the original Houston Arrows with Gordy Marty and Mark Howe. And that was a surreal experience learning hockey from Gordy Howe's like learning the Bible from Jesus. And I got to spend uh, a season before they left and went to Hartford traveling around two countries with them. I'd only been on one plane in my life when I came to the Chronicle. That was a puddle hopper going from Waco to Odessa, Texas home of Friday Night Lights, and so it was amazing for a 24-year-old guy, and and I was so stupid, my wife says, hey, seed, I didn't know you could sign for room service, so I paid cash for room service for, gosh, I don't know how many road trips, till I mentioned on a bus to the hockey players how I was running out of cash, and they said, what have you been spending your money on? I said, well, room service. I said, it's expensive getting a cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke, which is like $4 then, and giving them a 20, and they take off instead of giving me change. (laughs) (laughs) So when they told me that you could sign for room service, it was a revelation. I think that's when I started to get fat, when I knew I could sign for room service and turned in on expenses. But I've been blessed to have a great job in platforms and radio and been doing TV regularly here for years on the NBC affiliate. And then of course the Chronicle let me do all those things. You remember way early in our careers, a lot of newspapers, sports editors wouldn't let their writers go on TV and radio because they thought they were imparting their knowledge to competition, but mine did. And uh, the thing I'm going to miss most out of all this is not the writing. I may do some freelance, including I'm doing some stuff for the Chronicle around the draft is, uh, is the people like the fun of the combine and the league meetings was coming over there to see all my friends like you guys and getting to hang out and we get to spend so much time BSing while we're waiting around and I'll miss that the most. John, obvious question. Why did you decide to retire now? Clark is my 51st year in the business. I turned 70 in November and I told my wife who was totally against my retirement uh, because she didn't want me around more often. And <laughs> and so I told her, I said, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of going to the Texans every day. I said, you know, she and I have been married 34 years. And I said, I've been doing this, uh, covering a beat since 1976. And I'm just tired of it. I'm kind of tired the way it's changed, you know, right. having to, all the stories be given to the national guys and having to confirm and not being able to have relationships with coaches and players like you used to. And they're doing a dinner to honor me for charity in June. And Tillman Fertitta, the Rockets owner, is hosting it at his 
hotel and the Galleria, and they 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 asked me about people I wanted to speak, and I so I said, well, if they'll do it, and I gave them some Max Euler players like Dan Pastorini and Robert Brazil and Kenny Houston and Elvin Bethay, people I'm friends with. And they said, what about the Texans? And I'm like, well, you know, other than Gary Kubiak, I can't say I'm really friends with any of those guys because you just don't get to do that anymore because of the way we're limited in dressing rooms to 45 minutes that weren't even able to go in there the last two years. And I told Bill O'Brien one time, I said, what I miss most having you as a head coach is not getting to talk to your assistant coaches, not getting to know them, not getting to talk to them about their families and hometowns and all that, like we used to. And he said, well, you can talk to them anytime you want. I'm just not going to let anybody else. And I said, well, that's not fair. So I never did it. But I remember being able to walk into Bum Phillips's office, sit down and watch tape with him. Mike Kolovac, their assistant GM, who became general manager, could go watch tape with him anytime or film back then. And they were happy to, to help. And today, if you try to do that, you'd get tasered, if not shot. And I miss those days. And I don't want to sound like a dinosaur who's bemoaning the good old days, but uh, people today who are younger who didn't have the advantages we did uh, to do that. Like, I was covering the NFL between the Oilers and the, and the Texans, and I got to go anywhere I wanted for eight years. And I loved coming to Tampa and St. Pete. My late father lived in Seminole over by St. Pete. So I got to come there when Dungey was there. And I've never been anywhere, Ira, where an organization was more accommodating to the media than it was when Tony was the coach and Rich McKay was the GM. And even an outsider like me could come over there sometime and go in their offices and talk to them. I miss that. John, uh, congrats on a fantastic career, Mr. McLean. Thank you, Ira. Uh, John, uh, let me run some names past you. Bum Phillips, Jerry Glanville, Jack Pardee, Jeff Fisher, Dom Capers, Gary Kubiak, O'Brien, and some more. Um, John, who, who was the easiest to cover? Who was the toughest to cover? Um, the easiest was Gary Kubiak, because I had known Gary since he was a ball boy. The most fun was Bum Phillips. The most interesting was Jerry Glanville, because even though he hated me, it was something new and different every day. Plus, the Oilers were good during that period, but it was one controversy after another. Then when he they didn't renew his contract, he went to Atlanta. Jack Pardee came over from University of Houston. And they had two the Buffalo playoff choke after the 92 season. In 93, his best team I've ever seen didn't go to a Super Bowl. They were great on offense, great on defense, and they blew the divisional round playoff game before the biggest crowd in Astrodome history to the Chiefs and Joe Montana's last miracle pass, even though in that season with Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride, I've never been through anything like that. And when I hear people, they'd say, Man, my team's done this, this, this. I said, my team, I'll put it up to 93 team against anybody. <laughs> one player blowing his brains out in the middle of the season. Another one didn't go to a game and it became baby gate. So he's been there for the birth of his child and it transcended sports and then it created a national controversy. And, and uh, those were fun times to cover a winner with controversy every day. And the toughest to cover was Bill O'Brien. 
and I respected Bill and I enjoyed working with him. And I put him in my farewell column when Peter King looked up, I think, I think he counted 122 people and Bill was one of them because Bill would get mad and he would, he would, he would call me up and he'd cuss me out and he'd almost always get over it. One time he went about eight weeks without talking to me because he didn't like something I'd written or asked him. And then he got over it, but, but he worked with me, but he was a hard guy to cover, but they won during that period. So they were a lot of fun. So those are the, those are the coaches. And, uh, but the one bum Phillips and Gary Kubiak, Gary never lied to me. Bum used to tell lies and go a lot, have a Budweiser and uh, everybody is bum. Everybody forgave him. And uh, because he was so much fun and they were good during that period, a genuine Super Bowl contender during what we call the Love You Blue era, era. And their misfortune was to be in the division with the Steelers, who won four Super Bowls in six years. So it was, it's been a it's been a wild and fun ride. And when I tell players today what it used to be like uh, for players, players. Think about this. I what Roger Goodell would do today. One time with the Oilers, this would have been uh, late '80s, and and a lot of players carried guns. And uh, one time, punter Greg Montgomery put uh, some hot stuff in the shoes of the offensive lineman, and it took a while. And they're out on the practice field, and all of a sudden, you got Hall of Famers like. Bruce Matthews and Mike Munchak start dancing like one of the old Westerns where they shoot bullets at your feet and tell you to dance. And then they drop down to the ground, take their shoes off their socks and their feet are burning and everybody got a big kick out of it. So they found out that it was uh, Greg Montgomery who'd done it. So some of the linemen took, he had this big pet rabbit, like you went at a fair and in his locker, and every week he would put a pornographic message to an opposing player or coach on that rabbit. And so they took his prized rabbit, some of the linemen, and strung it up by all fours at the goalpost and went and got shotguns and guns and blasted that rabbit to oblivion where cotton was blowing all over the practice fields. And I wrote about this. Now, if that happened today, can you imagine what Goodell would do to players that did that? And by the way, about three days later, Montgomery comes back. He had gotten all the cotton, put his rabbit back together, put bandages all over it, put it back in a locker. And it looked like the rabbit had returned from the civil war. <laughs> John, uh, you've been, you've been called the general. You've been called the commissioner. Now, Mr. McLean, they call me the sage of Tampa Bay sports. That means I'm old, McLean. That, that's all it means. I'm old. John, two quick questions. What's your legacy as, as a beat man? And, of course, Clark and I know what that's like being a beat man. So how do you want to be remembered as a beat man, John? And what's your advice for these young up-and-comers in terms of dealing with people, dealing with sources? What's your number one rule for these young writers? Let me back up. You asked about my legacy. Nobody's asked me about that. All I'd like for people to remember me for is that I worked hard. I, I worked hard to build trust and credibility. And I hope I was able to do that for readers, listeners, and viewers. And I always believe you can get more with sugar than vinegar. 
you have to use vinegar, do it. And if you treat people well and respectfully, even when they get mad at you, you know, don't be afraid to say, I was wrong. You're right. I tell people that when I'm making speeches, especially in college, never be, a, never be afraid to say, I don't know. I was wrong. And you're right, whether it's professionally or personally. And when I say that, my wife hears it and gags, said, well, you sure don't do that at all. You never say, I'm right and you're wrong or you don't know. And uh, I think those are, that's kind of a creed to live with. People will think you're human. Like when I screw up on Twitter, I will come right back when somebody points it out and say, I'm a moron. And I apologize. Here's what I said. Here's what I should have said. Or I'll say I'm an idiot. And, and I've always tried to do that and never talk down to people. And I tell young people, because of the internet today, which we never had, uh, you can keep close tabs on people. You can apply for jobs and network. Any, anywhere anyone's doing something you want to know or you want to do, reach out to them. And most people get back to you. Most people want to help people who want, who want to be helped. I know a few say, I don't know why you do that. I don't know why you help so many young people. And I, and I say, well, it's because you're a jerk and you don't do that stuff. But I remember how much help I needed when I started. I'll tell you guys a combine story one time. We're at the combine and I'm sitting up in the front. We're always set because we ramrodded the quotes network. And a young guy comes in looking like a deer caught in headlights. And he's looking around. I can tell he's never been. I go up and shake hands with him and uh, introduce myself. His name was Jim Weber from Michigan. He'd been sent from the Michigan paper to come to the combine, do stories on some Michigan people. So I said, let me introduce you around. I said, this is Adam Schefter from the Denver Post. He went to Michigan. Adam, this is Jim. He's from Michigan. And so I introduced him to some people. And the next year, Jim came back looking a little more confident. And he stayed in touch with me as he's become a big executive somewhere in New York. And so I always wanted to make sure if anybody looks like they, they're, they need help to offer it. And I don't care where it is. If I'm in an airport and I see people looking around confused, I'll go up and ask them if I can help them. I just, I remember how important that was to me and still is, especially when I'm in an airport, I'm not used to. And so I always wanted to help people because young people, they're going to be where we are. You know, we'll be on the other side of the grass and I'd like to do a little, my little small part to help them get there. And John, any advice for uh, dealing with sources and, uh, burning your sources and, 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 and confidentiality? Well, first of all, one of the things that bothers me about journalism, and I know you guys feel this way too, there's no accountability. Anybody can write or broadcast anything they want without any accountability. And bosses, and I like to think in newspaper business, we still have to be accountable, but there's so much on the internet that's just thrown out there. And as long as you put a could or maybe or might, you can always say, hey, I didn't say that. But if you get it right, you can claim you had it first, which you didn't. You either say it's happening or it's not happening. And networking becomes important and it's harder to network. You know, you, you've got to go wherever you can, where your team is. One of the big things Chronicle does, I've got the Texans have on Tuesdays during the Sears play, players, owner, 
out doing charitable things. You always go to those charitable things. Always. You get there before them and you stay till they're gone and you get to know them away. And a lot of the players have their own publicists. So it's important to get to know those publicists and get their seals because they are vitally important too, because players rely on them so much, which I've kind of never figured out unless you're like Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or JJ Watt or somebody like that. But uh, you have to be able to talk to as many people as possible. Now, you mentioned burning somebody. If you burn somebody once, they're never going to help you again, and they may help your competition. And I don't view locals as my competition. I, I view the nationals, Adam Schefter, Ian Rappaport, Tom Pelissero, uh, Jeremy Fowler, all those people. Uh, uh, all those people, Jay Glazer, all those people trying to get stories on my beat. And unfortunately for us, agents and teams will feed the things to the national guys where they'll get more more attention. And I don't blame them. If I've got a choice of giving something to Adam Schefter with his almost 9 million followers to, compared to John McClain with only 147, I'm giving it to Adam Schefter. And, and as you guys know, the agents are always recruiting based on their actions. So I, I miss the part where you can get an agent to return your call, where you can build up relationship with a coach and general manager, others in the organization. And, uh, and maybe some teams still have that. That's not the way it is in Houston. And, and I enjoyed covering the Texans, but not as much as the Oilers because you just didn't have the same access as you had back in when I got in at late seventies, eighties and nineties. I'm glad you mentioned that distinction between eras, John, because it's not just the eras, the distinction you drew between the internet and newspapers. I always felt with newspapers, if you were wrong, it sat there all day. It oh, sat yeah. on it, and so you knew you were wrong. And so you made damn sure you got it right. And you're going to miss some, but you made damn sure you got it right. With the internet, I'll never forget when it first sort of became a big deal. I'm going to say in the, the mid-90s or so, uh, someone wrote a story. I was covering the 49ers then. And I said, that story is wrong. I mean, that story is absolutely wrong. And he said, no, it, it, it's right. And I said, you better pull it down. And he pulled it down. He said, I can do that because it doesn't exist. And I went, what? He goes, you pull it down, it vanishes. But the newspapers, it stays right there. And you're right about no accountability. I always felt that with the internet, which uh, I eventually went over to, it wasn't so much in some places about getting it right. It was getting it first. If it was wrong, you pulled it down. You know, that was so there, there was a real distinction between that. One of the things that I think is interesting today, I don't even know how many players actually read what I wrote in the Chronicle columns, features, all kind of notes, whatever. But if you tweet something they don't like, they see that and they yep. respond. And back in the old days when newspapers uh, were more prominent, and teams paid more attention to them before they had their own in-house publications on websites. And some teams, Texans do a great job. They must have 10 to 15 people working on their website, their TV show. But you guys know when we worked in two newspaper cities, and we all did, every day they'd have the sports sections of the Chronicle and Post in the Oilers buildings. Most players would pick them up when they came in, go read them at their lockers or if they're on the toilet. And if they saw something they didn't like, they would let us have it. And uh, so you sit there and you get chewed out and you try to reason with them. And most of the time they'd get over it because they would respect you because they'd see the good things you wrote most of the time. And, and today, I don't know, I have no clue 
who reads what because most people never respond and uh you kind of i know the public does because they send emails now i've never looked at anything on uh my twitter i don't look i never did first time i got on twitter a friend of mine said man you're not gonna believe all this stuff people are saying about you and i said like what he looked he scrolled through them he said well let me pick one that it's not as bad as the others. You're fat, you're old, you're bald. You don't know what you're talking about. You should retire. And I said, that's the good one. So I never looked at a mention again and never have. I'll retweet a lot of stuff. Like I retweet everything I see from you guys, my other friends around the league. And But I've never looked to see what anybody said. And I felt bad because last Thursday, a... Uh, friend of mine said i know you don't look at your mentions but you should because there's a lot of people around the nfl and in the media saying really nice things about you and i said well how do i do that <laughs> and so i wanted to get back to everybody but i got 283 text messages i had i still have over 500 emails i just finally was able to go through my voicemails i had about 20 dms and i'm going to try to get back to everybody because if they're gracious enough to write nice things about me, the least I can do is to get back to them. And uh, I'm just blown away by all this. And uh, and it doesn't make me wish I had changed my mind. I don't. Because like at the end of the, the day, ordinarily at the end, I would be writing a column. Uh, tomorrow I would get up and write my Sunday stuff. And now I don't have to. I don't have to do squat if I don't want to other than my radio shows, which I like doing because first time I got paid for talking was in 1976. A station here gave me $100 to uh, come in and do a talk show for an hour. And when I walked out, I felt like I should go up against the wall, put my hands up and get frisked because I was stealing. Yeah, right. That's right. I, I know the feeling uh, when I was doing some stuff in San Francisco, I felt the same way, like, wow, this is unreal. This is easy money. Um, I want to ask you a three-part question and, and quick responses on this. Um, I already talked to you about your favorite coaches or your most interesting, least favorite. Who is your favorite individual to cover quickly? And then I'm going to ask you a least favorite, and then I'm going to ask you one other question. But who is your favorite individual to cover? During the Love You Blue era, it was Bum Phillips. During the Run and Shoot era, it was Warren Moon. And with the Texans, it was Eric Winston. Okay, who is your least favorite? Uh, during the Love You Blue era would have been center Carl Mock, who jumped on me just about every day as the team leader for things he didn't it. like. And now it. we're friends. And uh, with the Texans, Arian Foster, who was great till he got his big contract and he hated the local media. And uh, one time he called me Lane McLean or something. So I wrote a column ripping him and signed it, Lane McLean. <laughs> and uh, say... Um, Arian was, Arian was not a bad guy. He was just tough to cover because he didn't want to deal with us. One time he wouldn't talk to us. I had PR people. I said, if you don't get him to talk, I'm calling the league office. So he came out and said everything. I'm just here to do the best job. I, I be the, I'm just here to be the best player I could possibly be. Asking other questions. Kept repeating that over and over. I, I like how you divide those eras into like geological periods that we'd have on the earth, you know? Um, and, and, my, and my last one is, who was your most or your most memorable interview? What was your most memorable interview? When you think back and go, that was my favorite. Well, first of all, I, I went to Lubbock and interviewed Bobby Lane one time. I went to Chicago and interviewed uh, White Sox owner Bill Vack 
at the Bard's Room at Comiskey Park when the Sox were on the road, and he regaled me for a whole day and told me stories about, you know, getting Eddie Griddell, the, the, the dwarf batter, how that came about. He told me when his dad owned the Cubs and he was working for him, told me stories about Al Capone and Don, John Dillinger. And next day I went to George Howells' office. He told me about Babe Ruth replacing him in right field for the Yankees being there with Jim Thorpe the day the NFL was formed and the, how they got Butkus and Sayers in the same draft. And it was amazing. And But the best one of all was 1998 after Don Hudson died, the great Packers receiver. I know the slinging Sammy Ball, the last survivor of 1963 original class of the Hall of Fame. So he lived out in West Texas on a ranch. That's all anybody knew. And uh, so a friend of mine here claimed that he'd play dominoes with Ball. Ball loved to play dominoes. He'd just go out to his ranch and, and play. And so I, I asked Bill, I said, can you set up an interview? Chronicle will pay for you to go. He said, yeah, we flew to Lubbock. We drove a couple hours to the base of the Double Mountains. And there was Sammy's ranch where he lived since the late 30s. And he lived by himself because his wife died. And I knew he cussed like crazy. And as soon as we pulled up, he comes out on his porch. No, you can't see anything around except cactus and tumbleweeds and the double mountains. And, and he and cowboy Bill Lanza Jr. just start going at it, insulting each other that we go inside. He gives us lunch. They start playing dominoes and he regales me with these unbelievable stories, including stories about the Redskins and what it was like when he played with no face mask, a little leather helmet, and a rule that blew me away that you could hit a quarterback till the whistle blew. So as soon as he'd throw a short pass, the lineman would chase him all over the backfield <laughs> until the whistle blew. And if he had a receiver weaving in and out, they were chasing him. And Sam was 6'2 and 2'10 when he played, and that was big. He told me one time they were playing, and they kept hearing a PR guy PA guy calling people's names and they could see people start to stadium start to empty out. And then we got in the dressing room. They were told that was for, they were calling out officers because Pearl Harbor had been bombed and they didn't want the players to know it and be distracted. And a story told me when he was in the minor league system of the Cardinals playing baseball, he played with guys who went on to be the gas house gang, Marty Marion, uh, Joe Medwick. And he said, there was a right fielder that played for another team. He was 17, and he said, that some bitch, he, everybody hated. Everybody wanted to kick his ass because of the way he acted. And he would turn his back to the hitter uh, when we were hitting and Darius hit ball. He would put his glove in his back pocket. He would sit. He would do jumping jacks and just Darius to hit it to him. But when we did, he caught it every time. And he hit home runs that was so the line drives you could hang clothes on. And when I was playing short, I'd hear it, see him at a home run and I could hear the plank coming out of the fence before I was able to turn my head. And I said, I said, he told the opposing manager, why do you let him do that? He says, because the big team says he's going to make him a lot of money and to leave him alone. I said, did that guy ever become anything? He said, well, you tell me. That was Ted Williams. And I'm like, wow. I never heard anything like that. So when we left the next day, we're standing out on his porch. And he drove to Sweetwater, Texas, about 30, 40 minutes away to play golf during the week. And he was 85. And he didn't like 
playing on the weekend because he liked to watch golf. And before we left, I asked him what his best trophy was. He had a little trophy case. He reaches in it, pulls out a piece of paper, blows dust off of it, holds it up, and it's his only hole in one. And so we're on the porch. And I said, Sammy, why do you not move to Fort Worth or Sweetwater instead of living out here all by yourself? And he said, and I had to change the word. He said, because anytime I got to take a pee, I can come right out here on my porch and take it anytime I want. And nobody can see me. And he put his hands, his thumbs in his pants. He said, and by the way, I got to take one right now. Want to join me? And I did. <laughs> Ian and I would do that in Tampa all the time. <laughs> Ray Perkins once did that to me on the buck porch over there, uh, John. Except he, he aimed at me instead of the grass. <laughs> oh, too bad the wind blood blowing right back at him. John, a couple of last ones for me, my friend. Um, and I'm going to take you to Canton, Ohio, which is a place very dear to your heart. Uh, John, are you going to stay on, hopefully, for me and Clark as a Hall of Fame selector? Uh, and any changes to the format uh, that you would uh, that you would encourage, John? Well, yes, I am going to stay on the Hall of Fame Select Committee. That's the greatest honor I've ever had, other than being in it, winning the Bill Nunn Award when it was a Dick McCann Award in 06. And so I, I treasure those moments. As you guys know, it's an enormous responsibility that we have. And we can't ever go wrong with any of the classes. You know, I'm like you. I want uh, two veterans a year. I think it's important to get more vets in who were passed up for any number of reasons. And they are definitely worthy. I tell you, of all the times I've been to Canton, and I figured I've been there 30 times. And like I went before the Texans played the Browns this season, my photographer and I went a day early. We went to Canton and Chris Schilling let us do whatever we wanted. And he knew I was going to retire. So he took a bunch of pictures of me in and outside of the hall of fame. And that meant so much to me and other times I've been up there, but one time uh, I was there for induction weekend and I asked Joe Horgan, I got an idea if he would let me go into the hall by myself in the middle of the night and write about it. So he said, huh, nobody's ever asked that. Yeah. Security will be on. Here, you'll have to call security guard. I'll let them know what you're doing. So I spent two, two hours at two in the morning going through the Hall of Fame when all the lights were out except for security. And you talk about strange being in there like that instead of being there in, during the day. And so I wrote a story about it, and I know they all liked it. But, and uh, it was an honor to be able to do that. And I never get tired of going to Canton. People ask me all the time, and I'm sure they ask you, what do you recommend as a fan in the NFL? Is it go to Canton? So hopefully on induction weekend, but you can't go wrong on any weekend and go to Lambeau Field because there's nothing like either one. And if you do them, you've been to the cathedrals. Last one for me, John. Andre Johnson, Reggie Wayne, Tory Holt. John, you got guys like Steve Smith and Bolden uh, on, on the brink. They want to know why they're not in. John, take a minute and tell me why Andre Johnson's the guy, uh, the first guy to break that wide receiver deadlock. Well, this was his first year of eligibility, and he made the, the finals, and then he made the cut from 15 to 10, and we didn't put any first-timers in this year because I think we wanted to take care of some guys 
who had been waiting. And uh, I told Andre, it's going to be tough. It's tough for wide receivers, especially with so many gaudy numbers. And in my presentation, one of the things I emphasized was Andre Johnson's accomplishments compared to other receivers in the hall. And there were five or six where it was just him and Jerry Rice or him and Marvin Harrison. And as I pointed out to you guys, Jerry Rice played with Joe Montana and Steve Young. Marvin Harrison played all but one season with Peyton Manning. And uh, Reggie Wayne played with Peyton Manning. And the best quarterback who Andre Johnson played with was Matt Schaub. And he played with David Carr and Tony Banks and Sage Rosenfels and Case Keenum. And I could go on and on about his incredible accomplishments with kind of a, a rogues gallery of quarterbacks compared to other receivers uh, who are in or competing for the Hall of Fame. John, since you mentioned the increase in seniors or the potential increase in seniors, which we think is going to happen um, this year uh, when it'll be voted on and, and for the class of 2023, but whether it goes to two or three, I don't know. I think it's going to be increased and rightly so. But like Ira, you are a member of the senior committee. So I'll ask you a pointed question. You've got dozens, uh, over 100 players uh, who may be Hall of Fame worthy. Certainly you've got 59 all-decade players, 53 of whom have never been discussed. Who would you be your first choice today if you had to pick a senior? And let's say, I'm going to say, accepting a Houston Oiler or a Houston Texan, but, but, but a Houston Oiler. Um, so Houston's out of the picture. Who would be your first choice as a senior. Well, if, I was, if Houston wasn't out of the picture, yeah. it wouldn't be anybody from Houston. Okay. One of the players that I've thought about a long time because I watched him play when I was young, and I think he went to 10 Pro Bowls back when the Pro Bowls meant something. I can't remember. Maxie Bond, a linebacker yeah. for the Rams, who was tremendous. Right. And as a Cowboy fan when I was young, it used to drive me crazy watching the Rams with linebackers Jack Pardee, Maxie Bond, Myron, Myron Patios, and, and watch them beat the Cowboys. And I've just, every year when we're looking at all the players, he's just one that stood out. Another one, Pat Fisher, the corner of the, of the commanders. Boy, that's weird. Yeah, that's it? weird. And the, the Washington too. football and the team. Too. Yeah. Pat Fisher just tormented the Cowboys for years, back when the Cowboys were really good, he would just irritate Drew Pearson. And before that, the other great Cowboy players. And so that's another one that stood out to me. And then the ones that way back, did did we put I don't, did we put in Vern Dillwig yet? Uh, no, no. That's his first name, right? Vern yeah, Dillwig. Laverne, Laverne, yeah. Laverne, yeah. Vern Dillwig. When we were studying him and I was on the Centennial Committee, and had to rely on guys like Gil Brandt and Ron Wolf and Joe Buzzard, former NFL historian, and John Madden and Bill Belichick. It was such an honor to be on that committee with them. And he was one I thought, sure, we were going to put among the 10. And I think that we need to take care of some of those guys that played before we were born right. and uh, rely on as much information as we can get. We couldn't go wrong. If we put 10 in every year, uh, we would still be short of the seniors who deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. 
Agree with you 100%. Al Wister, Fern Llewellyn, or others, Ox Emerson, you've got a long list. John, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Congratulations on a wonderful career at the Chronicle. And we will see you in Canton this summer. Clark and Ira, guys, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime you need me, I am available. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks thank so much. Thank you, guys. That was Hall of Fame voter and Bill Nunn Award winner, John McLean and Ira. How soon before they're going to have an Ira Kaufman day in Tampa? <laughs> you know, Clark, he, he's one of the great beat men. I mean, oh. you, got the, you got the Ed Bouchettes, you got the McLeans. And, and one of the great storytellers. One of the great storytellers. I mean, come on. You know, what, what do I got? I got Vinny Testaverde got mad at me for a couple of days. I mean, what, what do I got? Can't they find a dirt road there to name after you, Ira? <laughs> I can't get a dead end named after me. I was there. Right? You know, where were you and when were you? You know, Clark, I'm, I'm going to shock you because, Clark, usually I'm talking about the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s. Clark, I'm going to talk about last Thursday. Yeah, March, please. March 31st. Um, and you're going to love this part because it's the first time I was let into the building at one buck place in two years. The first time. And we got our media workroom back. They were using it as a quarterback room. We're back in the media workroom. And I got into the auditorium because COVID shut everything down. Everything for two years. So we're back in the auditorium. It was surreal. Surreal, Clark. It was the Bruce Arians announcement. Uh, Todd Bowles' uh, ascension to the head coach. And here's what I'll tell you, Clark. All of a sudden, I noticed that sitting in the front row with the Glazers and Jason Light is a figure, in, in, you know, with a sweatshirt on, a hat, and he's on the aisle. Tom Brady. Tom Brady shows up at Arians' press conference. Now, Clark, given all these crazy stories about Brady forcing Arians out, I, I didn't know if he was there to support Arians or, or to support Bulls. You know, you, you never know. But he's on the aisle. That's the key phrase, Clark, on the aisle. So I turned to the guy next to me. He's from a local TV station. I said, Dan, when this thing's over, we have to pounce on Brady. We got to get Brady. He's the, he's the guy that hasn't talked in this whole time. He goes, yeah, you're right. Well, Clark, he's sitting across on the other side of the auditorium. So as the thing's winding down, I make, I make my way over there. I'm standing in the aisle. I'm 10 feet away from Brady. I'm going to be all over this guy. And Clark, as the final remarks are made, the security guy from the Bucks been there 20 years, protects Arians, protects the head coach, protects the owners. He opens the door in front of him, and Brady flashes 4-4 speed running out the door, Clark. I mean, the guy was timed at 5-0 in the combine. He, he must have gotten faster uh, in the intervening years. And I came up empty, absolutely empty. Wait, 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 you're the sage. How can you come up empty? You know, and I was, I, I was so pissed off, Clark, because he, he's the guy. He's the only guy. That can put sure. these rumors to rest, Clark. Right. Right. We know what Arians is going to say. We know what Jason Light's going to say. We know what Joe Glazer's going to say. But we got to hear it from Brady. Wait, we he outran you? He outran you, Ira? How does that happen? I grasped. I, I, I got nothing but air. 
I, 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 I he, he must have thought, he must have thought I was Aaron Donald coming after him, Clark. Well, you know, Ian and I remember that day very well because we got nothing but air that day. We were here talking to Upton Bell, and we had a great time. But somebody was missing. Somebody was chasing air over one buck's place. Clark, who, who knows when we're going to get Brady? I mean, it might be another three months, and by then he's going to say, that's old news, and I don't want to talk about it. So that's my story. I'm sticking with it. Brady dodged me like I was J.J. Watt in his prime. Clark, you're going to have to start working on your starter speed, Eric. God. <laughs> hey, any final thoughts for this week? Any final thoughts? Well, those are pretty good thoughts, but any others? Well, Clark, think about it like this in the last couple of months. I mean, you start with that loss to the Rams from the Buck perspective. A uh, big comeback, then a heartbreaking setback. Cooper Cup, of all people, let, let unguarded. Then Brady retires. Then he unretires, Clark. And then Arians steps down when he, he can coach a team, theoretically, that is now favored to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. The Bucs have shorter odds than the, than the Rams do. Clark, think about that. The Bucs are now favored over the Rams to win the NFC Championship, and wow. Arians walks away. Clark, those are four earth-shaking moments, and they've all happened in the last two months. And that's why, Clark, I'm in the nerve center of the National Football. <laughs> that's right. Oh, a fifth earth-shaking <laughs> movement. <laughs> the fifth one. You're back with us. That was the fifth one. You're back. <laughs> Unlimited numbers. Well, I'll tell you something. It's completely, completely away from one bucks place, completely away from football. I know how much you like music and rock and roll music. All right. I do. Yes. Uh, well, this week, as you know, we lost a legend. Bobby Rydell, 79, died of complications from pneumonia. Philadelphia legend. Uh, I listened to him when I was a kid. I'm sure you did. Yes. Um, had a lot of big hits. I think of Wild One, um, Volare. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, kissing, talking. I think um, uh, there's numbers of them, but but I want to know what was your favorite song if you had one. I mean, if you, if you followed him. Well, you already mentioned it, Clark, and uh, for me, it's wild one. And I'm gonna do my Bobby Rydell impression over here, Judge. Oh no! I mean, don't sing. You you're not to, gonna sing, please. Ian might have to edit this out. <laughs> wild one. I'll make you settle down, settle down. That's it, Clark. That's it. Wild one for me. Yeah, it really makes me wish we had Bobby Rydell back with us. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Clark. I got one quick story before you give your favorite. Well, no, I see Ian's going to weigh in here, too. I, I, now, was, I, I was just going to say, I think we have a new intro song for the show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, Clark, uh, my wife and I went to Las Vegas last month. Uh, because Joe Buck's fan was, was nice enough to pay for my hotel room. They owed me a trip to Vegas from a couple of years ago. That was uh, the Bucks were going to play in Vegas, and we didn't go because of COVID, and they felt they owed me a trip. So I took it, Clark. We stayed at the Bellagio. Very nice, Clark. So anyway, my brother drove over from Palm Springs, and he's a Sinatra fanatic, and I was looking for something, you know, some show to go to, and I see Paul Anka. Oh, is yeah. singing the Sinatra songbook. Clark, the guy's 80 years old, Clark. Yeah. Yeah. And he's right there with Bobby Rydell. Same area, you know, yep. with those teenage idols. He had that tit, Diana, yep. put, your, put your head on my shoulder. Nice. And um, he gave a great show, Clark. So now you have to give your Bobby Rydell favorite, my man. Well, I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to spare our <laughs> listeners that. I'm not going to sing it. But I'll let Bobby Rydell sing it. It's Wildwood Days. Ian, you got it? 
Keep it going, Ian. Keep it going. That's going to do it for this week. We'd like to thank John McClain for joining us, Glendon for producing us, Ivor for singing for us, I think, and you for listening to us. If you want to hear more iChester 2 podcasts, just go to phonepresscoverage.com, pull down the podcast icon from the toolbar, and click on the iChester 2. And if not, well, you know, tune in next week, but maybe, just maybe, Ivor will join us again. Thanks so much for listening.